Good morning. It's good to see you. If I've not met you, my name's Steve. It's my privilege to be the pastor here. If you're a guest, we're delighted to have you. We are right now in the study of the book of Revelation. So I would encourage you. We're going to be in chapter 14 today, kind of in the, the middle of this chapter. If you've not been with us, let me kind of bring you up to speed. So the book of Revelation really is all built around uh, chapter 5. Uh, it's probably the most important chapter to understand. It's a seven-sealed book, more likely a scroll. Everything that man forfeited when he rebelled against God uh, and what it would take to redeem it. No one's worthy to open the book except Jesus, right? So he begins, and that's chapter 6 kind of on. So the seven seals that he opens are seven judgments that have got to be executed on the world to prepare it for the Messiah to come. When you get to the seventh seal, it's not one more judgment, but it's literally a series of seven more judgments called the trumpet judgments. As you work your way through them, once you get to the seventh trumpet judgment, which is kind of where we are, it's, it, it's as I mentioned a moment, we're, gonna, we're kind of in a, a parenthetical section of Revelation. The seventh trumpet judgment is not one more judgment, but is another series of seven judgments called the bowl judgments, which happen at the end of this tribulation time, this seven years, as God prepares the earth for the coming of the Messiah. And so we're in this parenthetical section, starting back with kind of chapter 11, but mostly chapter 12, where John is giving us some insight uh, into some other stuff that is going on. Uh, so he, chapter 12 is all about this historic conflict between the great dragon, Satan, and Messiah. This played out since the, you know, the time of his fall at the beginning of, of history and continues to play out today and will play out until that moment when Jesus returns at the battle of Armageddon and Satan is actually thrown into the bottomless pit for a thousand years. You get to chapter 13 and you have two Characters who are going to be a part of this conflict at the end times. The first one is the beast out of the sea. We know him better as the Antichrist. He is going to be that world ruler. If you're familiar with the prophecies in Daniel, I mean, he's the, the little horn that comes up. Uh, he is the one who is going to unite the world around him. The second character is the beast out of the land. It's, we called him the false prophet. And he is the one who's kind of the sidekick of the beast. And he is going to make it so that everyone on earth will worship the beast and get a mark on the back of their hand or their forehead without which you will not be able to buy or sell. And so he is going to create a big statue of the beast and the whole world is going to worship the beast. And oh, by the way, you're worshiping Satan by worshiping the beast. That's what gets us to chapter 14. That all makes sense? You get to chapter 14 now. And really, uh, if you were with us, we're in chapter 13. You begin to, you know, it's just so 
ominous. It's like the whole world is worshiping this guy. And one of the things that we saw when the beast comes on in, in, into power, he is actually able to overcome the saints of God. And so he is going to martyr them. So you almost get this sense, okay, how is this going to play out? Does the beast ultimately win? And you get to chapter 14 now, and God says, no, 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 no. Let me tell you how this is going to play out. And, and, and the type of literature is, it's proleptic. It is, this is how it's all going to end with the certainty of this is how it ends, even though it hasn't ended yet. So the first vision in chapter Revel, uh, Revelation 14 is this revelation of Jesus, the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, Jerusalem with the 144,000 Jewish evangelists that we've seen before in the book of Revelation have gone out, Jesus is the one who basically at the end is left standing. It's not the red dragon. It's not the beast, the antichrist. It's not the false prophet. It's not the statue of the beast. It's Jesus. Jesus wins. You're on the right side. There you go. It's exciting. It's encouraging, right? Well, then... There are two more visions in chapter 14 which are also proleptic that are looking, even though the tribulation has not come to an end, there are seven more judgments. The time is still kind of playing itself out, but are just reminders that how this is all going to end. And in this vision, there are three angels, and with three angels come three different warnings so i'm going to start reading with verse six would like for you to read along with me in your bible if, if you have it or there on your your bible app so verse six and i saw another angel flying in the mid heaven having the eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people and he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. And another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast in his image and, those, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commands of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, blessed are the ones who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds will follow them. All right. So three angels. 
Angels play a really important part in the book of Revelation. We saw Michael the archangel back in chapter 12. Uh, when you get to the bold judgments, there's actually angels in heaven that are pouring them out. These angels now are bringing these warnings. The first warning is this, and, and we'll see this, I think, later on, but this is almost like a funnel. It starts very wide, but goes all the way down specifically to those who receive the mark of the beast. The warning is, is that the creator God is going to judge. The creator God is going to judge. The heart of this is, there in verse 7, because the hour of his judgment has come. It's here. This is God judging the earth and preparing it for the time of Messiah. Now, it starts there, though, in verse 6 with a couple interesting things. And I saw another angel flying in the mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. Now, to be, to be transparent, I think I may have gotten a little nerdy on this, which I do sometimes when it comes to how I read the Bible. I, there are just things, and I ask questions, and I gotta be honest, the last couple services, I think I lost people here. So this, this may just be Steve being nerdy, okay? Uh, but if you're nerdy like me, then you'll enjoy this. If not, come back in about five minutes, and we'll be back to what's not so nerdy. But there's two questions about this that just strike me. One is, he says, there's an angel flying in the mid-heaven. Mid-heaven is the atmosphere. And if you don't believe me, and I don't have time, just go to Revelation chapter 12, the battle of Armageddon. It says that all the, the birds that are flying in the mid-heaven are called together for the great... Uh, you know, because it's the battle of Armageddon. They're going to eat the flesh of all these things, right? It's a great feast for the birds, right? So they're flying in the mid-heaven. So the first question is this. Is this literal or is this figurative? So we hold to a literal interpretation of the book of Revelation, which means that we try to take it at face value, understanding, though, that there are those moments in which it's going to be figurative. It's trying to explain something. And so the question is, is this angel flying in the atmosphere, preaching this eternal gospel, a literal angel? I mean, can you imagine how weird that would be to go out and see this angel flying through and hearing what they're saying? Or is it figurative? See, I told you, a little nerdy, okay? So... And if you, if you read different Bible commentators, there's difference of opinion. My, my own sense is probably it's figurative. Because if, if this angel is flying and preaching this eternal gospel, then the second angel, who's also following him, also in the midheaven, saying fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, is probably falling or flying around saying the same thing. And then when you get to verse 9, the third angel which followed them is also saying if anyone worships a beast. And so, and no Bible commentator I think have read thinks that both of those are literal. So I think it's more figurative. And what it's figurative of is that during this time of judgment, the time of judgment has come the gospel has been going out. 
The gospel has been going out through those two witnesses. You remember back in chapter 11, who are there in uh, Jerusalem preaching the gospel, doing great miracles. It's going out to the 144,000 Jewish evangelists who, who are, again, preaching the gospel. So my sense is, is that it's probably figurative to the movement of God. Also, I think the sense is, is that there is this, I mean, how could you be living in this world at this moment, right? You think of all the judgments, uh, the, you know, the famines, the wars, the uh, pestilence, and not realize something's going on. So, he announces. The second thing that for me is a really interesting question is having an eternal gospel to preach. Now, when you and I hear the word gospel, we all know that means what? Good news. And so, in our context of those who have been saved by grace, when we think and see the word gospel, we immediately read into this. This is the good news of Jesus, right? So, so that Jesus is the one. Excuse me, I hit that and I got it messed up. Jesus is the good news. You know, Jesus came and died. Jesus provided for, for us to have forgiveness of our sins. But did you notice what the message is there in verse 7? It's not Jesus. It's fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. How's that for good news? The hour of his judgment has come. Oh, by the way, you're getting the mark of the beast and you're going to be in torment forever and ever. How's that for good news? Here's the other question. Is is the message of Jesus dying on the cross, having paid for our sins, having provided eternal life, is that the eternal gospel? And the answer is no. Because prior to 2,000 years ago, nobody knew about Jesus. Not eternal. It became the good news it became the gospel when Jesus came and died. But it's not eternal. If you go back 4,000 years ago, the nation of Israel, that was not the good news. In fact, you remember even in Jesus' day, the, the Jews were not looking for a Messiah to come and die. They were looking for a Messiah to come and to liberate. And to liberate what? The world into a time of peace and prosperity and equity the lamb laying down with the lion and so when you think about what is it that is in essence being preached i don't think so much that his focus here is on the message of christ i think it's more broad than that i would even argue maybe the idea if you go to romans 1 of general revelation that this this world Excuse me, what happened here? There we go. That this, this world is finally going to get to the place 
where it's going to be righteous and it is going to be a place of equity and there's going to be fairness because from the fall and the death of Abel until our very day that we live, I think there's a longing that is in all of our hearts for a place where there is fairness and there is equity, right? We live in such a fallen world and it is so broken. I mean, you think about today. I mean, I think that's one of the things that's even going on in our country. The inequity of seeing things and, and certain people being treated one way by the judicial system and other people because of who they know and whatever being treated another way. It, it, it messes with our heart with people having over here so much and other people over here having so little. Good people getting sick and diseased and, and all of that. And there's this desire, why can't we live in this world where there's fairness and where there's equity? In fact, what's, for those of you that are parents and you have the second child, what's the first piece of the course that begins as that second child begins to enter in? You start hearing from the first child, that's not fair. That's not fair. I think in our hearts, God put in that desire. We were created in his image to live in a place of equity and fairness. One of the biggest objections sometimes people have to, to Christianity is, well, if God is so good and God is so loving, then how... Why is there so much sickness? Why is there such disease? Why are there good people who, who face such terrible consequences, right? The, the point is, is that why, why is there not fairness? And quite honestly, what you're seeing here is the whole bugaboo of this. So let's suppose, all right, so when somebody ever asks me that question, I'll give them this hypothetical. So let's suppose that God said tomorrow at noon, everything is going to be right, and everything is going to be righteous, and everything's going to be holy, and everything's going to be is going to be just, and everything's going to be fair. And so, man, all all those who create hurt, man, they're going to be gone, and all brokenness is going to be gone, and and anybody who could who could harm you is going to be gone. Right, because God is going to establish his peace. 12 o'clock tomorrow. All right. So how many of us are here at 12.01 tomorrow? Because aren't we the ones who create hurt and harm? And our brokenness and how it affects others? You see... The eternal gospel looks for this world of equity. The problem is you don't get there through grace. You don't get there through mercy. How you get there is through judgment. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. And that is the thing that I think that, you know, again, you go to Romans chapter 1, and this idea that God has put knowledge of who he is within us, and that's what doesn't ring true with this world. There's a creator who created us for a different life than what we experience here. Now, is that knowledge 
that oh my that you know this is a world where there's not equity and fairness but there's a god who could bring that is that enough to save us and he answers no it's like general revelation but it is enough to get us to start looking for what is the truth and how do we know that god and maybe you're here today and man you've been searching you've been reading you've been living in this crazy world you think there's got to be more there's got to be a god awesome i'm so glad you're here and what i want you to know is this there is a god of equity and fairness and he loves you and he loves you so much that he sent his own son jesus to come and to die for you so that you could be forgiven and better yet not just forgiven but actually wrapped in his righteousness he will make you holy and righteous like him and he has a world prepared for us throughout all of eternity where we will live in a place of righteousness and equity and fairness but it's only found in a personal relationship with Jesus that comes by faith so that's the first warning right the judgment has begun the time for it has come the second one, ooh, and I gotta hurry. Here we go. Uh, not so nerdy now. Verse eight. Another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. The world system is destroyed. Babylon represents the evil world system. Now, obviously, Babylon can refer to a city. Uh, there are some who actually study the book of Revelation. We're going to read a lot about Babylon in, in Revelation 17 as a religious system and chapter 18 as an economic governmental system. It, so it's, you're going to read a lot about Babylon. And there's some that actually believe that Babylon will be rebuilt and will become a great world power in the end days. And, and, and that's possible. But I think... He's not so much, again, talking literally about the city of Babylon as much as he's talking about its figurative representation of the governments of the world. So, you go back to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 10, they get off the ark. There's Noah, his three sons, their wives, and they begin to, to, to flourish. And God says, okay, be fruitful, multiply, go fill the earth. One of the great grandsons of Noah was a guy by the name of Nimrod. You don't like your kid? Name him Nimrod. There you go. Nimrod was a great warrior. He was a great builder. He built the city of Babel. And this is what it says in Genesis 11:4. They said, "Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower." whose top will reach into the heavens. Let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over all the face of the whole earth. So what you see here is another rebellion. On the one hand, worship, right? We're going to come and we're going to worship the God. We're going to make this, this, this tower to heaven, which God never asked him to do. Secondly, we're going to disobey him. We want to stay all here together. We'll govern ourselves instead of going across the face of the earth. And that's where God came down and, and then divided the languages and all that. But Babylon is the representative of all the nations of the world who have set up their own 
kingdom and their own empire. So you get to Daniel. We've been in Daniel a lot. And you have there in Daniel chapter 2 this image of this idol, right? Who's the head of gold? Babylon. The arms, Medan Persians, Greece, Rome. Ultimately, one day, still yet to come, these ten toes. Babylon the Great will be destroyed along with all the nations of the earth. So you go back to Daniel 2, right? So you have the statue, you've got the ten toes, silver or, or iron mixed with clay. What happens? There's a stone not cut with hands that comes and it destroys it so that there is no remnant ever again, ever again of a kingdom that is not the Messiah's kingdom. The Messiah's kingdom comes and establish warning, warning. The world's, the world system's going to be destroyed. It's going to be really different when we get to the kingdom. The third warning is then in starting with verse nine. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, "If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead and on his hand, he will also." drink of the wine of the wrath of God which is mixed in full strength by full strength there, there's no mercy there's no grace it's full strength and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever they have no rest day and night they will those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. The warning here is to the individuals who are contemplating getting, getting the mark, right? We looked at this in the end of chapter 13. Without that mark, you're not going to be able to buy. You're not going to be able to sell. You're going to be hunted. You are going to be persecuted. You might even be martyred. So it's really, in one sense, earthly, to your advantage to get that mark. But if you get that mark, what you are doing is you are participating in the worship of the beast. And that means you will face the wrath of God. It's not like, well, you might face it, or the, hey, I can get the mark, but still worship God over here. No, what he says here, if anyone worships the beast in his image, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. This is what's coming. And what he explains here is that the wrath of God is explained as fire and brimstone. Now I know that over the years, preachers have taken a lot of heat, get that, heat, for preaching fire and brimstone. And I think part of it is that there were certainly seasons in which it was all fire and brimstone and judgment and condemnation and no grace and mercy, and I understand that. But this is how God's word describes the judgment. Fire and brimstone. Eternal torment. Did you pick that up there in verse 11? And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Judgment is coming. Do you, do you see the funnel? He starts out here with to the world, 
the time of his judgment has come. Then it narrows down. Now what we see is judgment is taking out Babylon, right? The, the, the ungodly nations that have ruled the world, judgment is coming. And now, specifically to individuals, those who worship the beast, judgment is coming. And it's eternal torment. And again, in our day and age, we don't like to hear this. But do you know, you know Jesus did talk about hell more than he talked about heaven? Because here's the thing. The issue is that apart from God, apart from Jesus, we are the enemies of God. That's how we were born. We were born, in essence, outside of the garden. We are the enemies of God, not because of choices and decisions that those follow, but we are, we're born outside of the garden because that was the state in which we are born as the enemy of God. We need to be reconciled. There is one place of reconciliation. It is Jesus. The whole reason Jesus came and died was to reconcile us to God, to make us no longer the enemy of God, but the friend of God. Apart from Jesus, that's future. Which for those of us that know him, we talk a lot of here about living on mission. And by living on mission, we show Jesus with our life, we share Jesus with our lips. That's why. Because those people in our life, those friends and loved ones, those neighbors, those co-workers... There's judgment coming, and apart from Jesus, that's what they're facing. Why? Because they are an enemy of God. They're born hostile to him, in rebellion to him. All right, I got to finish here. Let's, let's just pick up verse 12 and 13 real quick. Because here is a word of encouragement in the midst of all this. Here's the perseverance of the saints. So you, you think about how even, and I mentioned, I think it was last week, that some of this, I think, the Holy Spirit gave John specifically for those who are going to be during this time. So, so this is just that reminder, that encouragement to them, the perseverance. that It's going to be worth it all. So the encouragement is aimed at those who are faithful followers of Christ. We especially those who are walking through this. And you see the contrast. On the one, those who receive the mark, what are they facing? Well, they're facing no rest. They're facing fire and brimstone. What we see to those who are followers of Christ, the ones who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus, and by the way, that whole idea of faith and obedience is kind of tied together. But it says this, blessed are the ones who die in the Lord from now on. Oh, by the way, yeah, you're being hunted. And yes, yeah, some of you are going to die as martyrs. But that's okay because in that moment, you rest from your labor. Where those who die in rebellion to God are going to face that torment and no rest day and night forever and ever. For those of us who die in Jesus, man, there's rest. There's reward couldn't help but think of what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 for momentary light affliction 
right? So the stuff of this life, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know if it's persecution or maybe you're facing some of that unfairness of this world when it comes to physical stuff. But man, as we live for Jesus, this momentary light affliction is producing an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. It'll be worth it. Live for that day. Death for the follower of Christ provides rest. It provides reward, right? The, the deeds will follow them. God is going to bless. That's why we live for that day. That's why we live on mission. And it's so easy to get caught up in this world and living for today and the things of today. And oh, by the way, you know, in that day, well, I'll just get the mark, right? It won't be that big of a thing. No, you're living for that day. Don't live for today. Live for that day. Live on mission. Live to be salt and light. Because on that day, ah, that day we're in a kingdom of equity and peace and fairness of love. And there's that promise of reward.